Ex-convict and his woman partner in crime. A brutal kidnap murder that has scarred forever the Greenleys' home in Kansas City. A crime that whisks six-year-old Bobby Greenleys from this school and by taxi to a plain white frame house in St. Joseph, Missouri, 40 miles away. Where beaten and shot through the head, he was buried in a shallow grave covered with freshly planted flowers. Where under a layer of lime and three feet of dirt, he lay dead while the kidnappers collected a $600,000 ransom for his safe return. The kidnappers, Carl Hall and Mrs. Bonnie Brown Hetty. Hall confessed planning the crime, implicated another ex-convict, John Marsh, and said Mrs. Hetty had spirited the boy from school. An American home shrouded in sorrow. Welcome to Insight. I'm Charlie, and with me today is Allie. How are you, Allie? I am doing well. We've got a big storm here at the moment, so hopefully you all can't hear it. Fingers crossed. Yeah, usually it's my side that has the storms going. But tonight we have a very special guest. Aaron from Generation Y is joining us to present a historic Kansas City case with us. How are you, Aaron? Hello, Charlie and Allie. How are you doing? We are doing great. We're really glad you're here. Yes. And I'm sure most people know about your show, but in the event someone doesn't, can you just tell us about your podcast? Generation Y podcast started in 2012. That means I'm old. And uh, we've been doing this quite a while, mostly true crime, but sometimes mysteries. Sometimes uh, we throw something weird in there, like an abduction or something, a UFO abduction. Well, we haven't really covered that yet, but I think that might happen sometime. Like Mothman. I like that episode. Yeah, we covered Mothman. It was really interesting. And there are so many legends and myths about these stories and cryptids and, you know, whatever keeps us interested. And I feel terrible because one of my favorite Gen Y episodes doesn't even have Justin on it, your Billy Meyer episode. Oh, yeah. It cracked me up. It was it was great. And so that one was definitely one of my favorite ones. I've done a few episodes now that are sort of for the people that listen to Art Bell and listen to us. And Art Bell recently passed, but he would cover stories like that. And I've always wanted to cover them. And the great thing about the Billy Meyer episode is the man who represents Billy Meyer. It's, you know, his mouthpiece. He has uh, put me on a very, very prestigious list of people who are failures. And most of them are scientists. So I'm, I'm very honored to be on that list. Well, congratulations. I hadn't heard about this great honor, but I'm glad to hear about it. And you also have another podcast that you're working on behind the scenes right now. Right. That's uh, due to come out, I'd say, late August, and it will be titled Framed. And the explanation for the title will come out before then, I think. But it will be on one case over 11 episodes. It will be in-depth. We have every available police report, court document, you name it. And it has to do with an unsolved case. I really like long-form podcasts, so I'm really looking forward to this one. And I'm actually, we live not that far apart, but I'm actually going to see you in Tulsa because you have a meetup on July 7th. So if anyone who listens to Insight is going to be in the Tulsa area in early July, definitely come out to that meetup. Yeah, I just mentioned it on an episode and now we have over 60 people going, but um, I can't wait to meet everyone. Tonight, we're going to talk about a case that at the time was as big as the Lindbergh baby kidnapping. 
And that's the kidnapping and murder of six-year-old Bobby Greenlease. To set the story up and explain why Bobby Greenlease was the target of a kidnapping for ransom, we need to start with the Greenlease family. Robert Greenlease, Bobby's father, made his fortune in car sales. He started building cars in 1903, back when cars were built one at a time rather than on the assembly line, so he didn't build very many of them before he moved into sales only. He had a Cadillac franchise in Kansas City. It started in 1908. He eventually branched out to have partial ownership in multiple dealerships in various cities. He eventually owned significant stock in General Motors, and this made him an incredibly wealthy man. He was a multimillionaire by 1930. Robert had a son from his first marriage named Paul, and Paul was sent as a teenager to Kemper Military School in Boonville, Missouri. For those who could afford it, Kemper was a good place to send teen boys who needed more structure and discipline. While at Kemper, Paul had a classmate named Carl Hall. As an adult, Paul would only vaguely remember this guy, but the connection as teens would make a much larger impact on Hall. In 1939, Robert Greenlease was 58 years old, newly divorced, and he married for a second time. It was to a 29-year-old nurse named Virginia Pollock. Two years later, they had a daughter named Virginia Sue, and then in 47, Bobby was born. The family would settle in a very well-to-do area of Mission Hills, Kansas, not far from the Missouri-Kansas state line. The Greenlease children attended the Notre Dame de Sciences Elementary School in Kansas City, a private co-ed Catholic school that was run by a French order of nuns. At some point, Virginia Sue moved to an all-girls school, but Bobby remained at Sion, and the daily routine was that his father drove him to school and dropped him off. His mom would then pick him up in the afternoon. Shortly before 9 a.m. on September 28, 1953, Robert dropped his son Bobby off at school as usual. Unbeknownst to Robert, though, two people were watching. At 10.55 a.m. that same day, a woman named Bonnie Hetty entered the school and asked for Bobby Greenlease. She claimed to be his aunt and said that Mrs. Greenlease had a heart attack that morning. She was at the hospital and wanted to see her children, so this aunt was sent to get Bobby from school. The nun who initially heard the story has been described as being mild-mannered and soft-spoken. This supposed aunt of Bobby's looked and acted the part. She was really distressed and upset by the circumstances, so the nun didn't probe further. Hetty was then led by the nun to the chapel to wait and pray while she went to Bobby's class to fetch him. They passed two other nuns on the way to the chapel who were curious about what was going on, but both were from France and the language barrier kept Hetty from having to try to get her story past anyone else. The whole thing could have fallen apart the second Bobby was brought to the chapel and asked who Hetty was or maybe protested in any way. But Bobby was a trusting kid and he took things at face value. So he took her by the hand and walked out of the door into the waiting taxi. The only items he brought with him was a medal on a red ribbon that he had won that year and a mechanical pencil that had his father's dealership information printed on it. The taxi driver later reported that Hetty was at the school for only about five minutes. The taxi took Hetty and little Bobby to a nearby drugstore where Hetty's boyfriend and accomplice, Carl Hall, was waiting. Hall was the mastermind 
behind this plot. But he sent Hetty to get Bobby since a woman would arouse less suspicion than a man. She could more easily get by the nuns. And also Bobby would be more likely to follow her out. Hall did have concerns that Hetty wouldn't be able to pull it off. Hetty had a very serious problem with alcohol and her drinking made her unreliable and unpredictable. Hall first spent time that morning watching the kids gather at the playground to find a gap where he could just grab Bobby rather than rely on Hetty, but he couldn't find one. So regardless of his concerns, he had to send her in and clearly she pulled it off without issue. Hetty and Bobby got into Hall's car after the cab dropped them off. Hetty had gotten some personal information out of Bobby, like the names of his pets, that they could use as proof that they were the ones who kidnapped Bobby when they contacted the family with the ransom demand. They then told Bobby they were going to get ice cream and go see his father, but instead drove him to a remote farm area in Kansas, just 10 miles from the school. The initial plan was for Hall to kill Bobby by strangling him with a length of rope, but he found that much more difficult than he anticipated because Bobby fought back and the rope was rather short, so instead he shot him. Hetty had already left the car before Bobby was killed so that she wouldn't have to witness it. Hall never intended to keep Bobby and exchange him for the ransom. Keeping a six-year-old child during this ordeal required more effort than he or Hetty could handle. We should point out that both of them were generally drunk during this period. They would both drink all day, not eat, not sleep. Hall was also a morphine and amphetamine user. A six-year-old is old enough to be a witness, so Hall decided that killing Bobby and pretending he was alive was the better option, and he had to talk Hetty into it. After the murder, the two took Bobby's body back to Hetty's home in St. Joseph and buried him in a grave Hall had dug the day before. And we're going to take a quick break for a word from our sponsor before we talk about the backgrounds of the kidnappers and what set this kidnapping plan in motion. Hiring can be hard. Multiple job sites, stacks of resumes, a confusing review process. But today, hiring can be easy, and you only have to go to one place to get it done. ZipRecruiter.com slash site. ZipRecruiter sends your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards. But they don't stop there. With their powerful matching technology, ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience, and then it invites them to apply for your job. As applications come in, ZipRecruiter analyzes each one and spotlights the top candidates so you never miss a great match. With results like that, it's no wonder that ZipRecruiter is the highest rating hiring site in America. And right now, our listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ziprecruiter.com slash site. That's ziprecruiter.com slash S-I-G-H-T, ZipRecruiter.com slash site. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. The kidnapping had been in the works for nearly two years, and Carl Hall had grown up accustomed to wealth. His father was a very successful attorney, 
and his mother didn't work, but came from an affluent family as well. He had an older sibling who suffered from a birth injury that left him institutionalized until he died at a young age. So Hall was essentially raised as an only child. When Hall was 13, his father died suddenly, and his mother almost immediately sent Hall away. He first lived with an elderly woman who owned a farm, and then after that, he was sent to Kemper Military Academy, where he met Paul Greenlees. Even in a school of boys from wealthy families, Paul stood out because the Greenleases had wealth beyond most of the other families. After a brief stay at William Jewell College, he didn't even last a semester. Hall enlisted in the Marines and served in World War II. His military career was mixed. He got in trouble for going AWOL, which is absent without official leave, and drunkenness. Eventually, he was court-martialed and sent to the stockade at Quantico, Virginia. Several months later, he was released and sent right back to combat where he stayed for nearly two years. While there, he earned two bronze stars for heroic acts. Once Hall was back from combat, though, he was again in trouble regularly for being AWOL and for drunkenness until he was finally discharged from the service. It was an other than honorable discharge, which means he basically didn't do anything bad enough to get a bad conduct or dishonorable discharge, but he had some significant conduct issues nonetheless. While Hall was getting into trouble in the service, his mother disowned him. She died when he was fighting in Japan, leaving him virtually penniless. But she left everything to her own mother, who had not yet disinherited Hall. He was her only heir. In fact, so when she died shortly after his mother, he inherited it all anyway. It was largely in the form of stocks and real estate, and he cashed them all out as quickly as he could. Then, in between his expensive purchases, bad business deals and gambling, he lost the bulk of it within about five years. This is when Hall turned from minor crimes like drug use to more serious crimes like armed robbery. He was eventually sent to Missouri State Penitentiary in Jefferson City for robbing cab drivers. He served just over a year of his five-year sentence, and it was while in prison that he first dreamt up this plan to kidnap someone for ransom. The richest person he knew was his former classmate, Paul Greenlease. The Greenlease family were locally famous. They were philanthropists, and this was reported on, as was the fact that Robert Greenlease had married a younger woman and had two more children. Shortly after Hall was released from prison, he moved to St. Joseph, Missouri, a town about an hour north of Kansas City. He was working odd jobs when he met Bonnie Hetty in a bar. She was 40 and he was 34. They knew each other for about 48 hours when he moved into her home. And Bonnie Hetty was raised mostly by an aunt in Nottoway County, Missouri, after her mother had died. She later married a man who found his success in the livestock industry. And then when her father died, she inherited a significant amount of money and also his farm. So while she didn't have the same wealth that Hall had grown up with, she had always been comfortable and certainly she was after her marriage. She divorced her husband on the grounds of his adultery and she got the house and a decent settlement. Financially, much like Hall, she could have been set for life, but also like Hall, she went through the money quickly. While Hall turned to robbery to bring in his income, Hetty turned to sex work to supplement the income she got through renting out the farm she had inherited from her father. They had a few things in common. 
being used to being financially well off, wanting more money than they currently had, and also being raging alcoholics. This kidnapping plan that Hall came up with was extremely detailed. He planned ahead every aspect leading up to the kidnapping in the school and what would happen immediately after. It's when he deviated from the plan that things began to unravel, but let's go back and just focus on the pre-planning for a minute. A few weeks before the kidnapping, while the Greenleys family was away on a European vacation, Hetty called the house. She claimed she was from the local public school, and she was taking a census of sorts of all the school-age children in Mission Hills who were not attending the local public school. She needed the names and ages of all the school-age children, and she also needed to know where they were going to be attending school. The maid who answered the phone provided all of this information, though she didn't think it was odd or even worth mentioning to the family until after Bobby was kidnapped. The pair actually hadn't entirely settled on which child they were going to kidnap, and they had considered taking Virginia Sue instead, and they almost did. Hall and Hetty began following the Greenleys family for two weeks prior to the kidnapping to get their daily routine down, particularly Robert taking the children on the school drop-off and then Virginia on the pickup in the afternoon. In a moment they didn't expect, Virginia and Virginia Sue stopped at a store, and Virginia went into the store leaving the girl in the car. Hall made the -the spur-of-the-moment decision to snatch the child then and there, but then Virginia Sue got out of the car to follow her mother into the store. According to Hall's later confession, when he finally saw Virginia Sue up close, she was older than he thought. That sealed the decision to kidnap the smaller Bobby. The problem with Bobby, though, was that he was always chaperoned and never left alone. There was simply no window with which to grab him, so they determined they had to use the ruse about his mother being in the hospital to have someone willingly hand him over. Hall and Hetty did all this surveillance using a rented car that had been rented in Hetty's name. They intended to use her actual car for the kidnapping, so if people thought back and remembered this rental car that was around the school a lot, it would send investigators looking for a car matching the description of the rental car. Hall really did think of these little details. There were purchases made as well. They bought stationery for the ransom note, a gun and ammunition, a blue plastic sheet to wrap Bobby's body in, a shovel and lime to speed up decomposition. And as we know, Hall had already dug the grave. This was all before the kidnapping. These purchases and actions remove all doubt as to whether or not they went into this planning to murder Bobby when clearly they did. Hall also had a shortwave converter installed in Hetty's car radio, and this allowed him to monitor police communication, and he stole plates to put on her car for the actual kidnapping. Another purchase was a newspaper from Oklahoma, where there was an advertisement for one of the Greenlease co-owned car dealerships. Hall cut out the ad that included the name Greenlease and pasted it onto the envelope he intended to use to send the ransom note. His hope here was that this would make the authorities think to look in Oklahoma for the culprits. The note itself, according to Hall, was written about two weeks prior to the abduction. The family was waiting for this ransom note almost from the moment they found out Bobby was missing. The school called the Greenlease home after Bobby was picked up to check on the family and Virginia answered. Of course, a nun was surprised since less than an hour before, they heard that she was in hospital having a heart attack. 
When she was told about Hetty coming and taking Bobby out of school, Virginia then called her husband at work and he called the police. By that evening, news of the kidnapping was all over the place and the family watched the reports on TV just like everyone else. Even though the Lindbergh kidnapping is more well-known today, this was just as big and just as widespread at the time as the Lindbergh kidnapping had been when it had occurred 21 years earlier. After Hetty and Hall returned to her house to bury Bobby, Hall drove to Kansas City to mail the ransom letter. Except he had the address wrong. Police intercepted the letter anyway because they were expecting it. The child of a wealthy family was kidnapped under a ruse, so ransom was the expectation. The police had told the post office to alert them to any mail addressed to the Greenlees family. Even though Hall messed up the address, his ransom plan was thought out. Worried that they would use bills in a serialized order that would be easy to spot, he demanded that they get money from all 12 of the Federal Reserve Districts. He told them to publish a note in the Kansas City Star newspaper that said, M, we'll meet you this week in Chicago, signed Mr. G. That would be the signal that all the money had been gathered and was ready to be dropped off. Hall also threatened to kill Bobby if the money bag had any dye packs in it or radio transmitters. He had asked for $600,000 in denominations of 20s and 10s and said Bobby would be returned 24 hours after they received the money. To indicate the note was received, Hall told them to drive up and down Main Street between 29th and 39th Street with a white rag tied to the car's antenna for about 20 minutes. It wasn't until the next day that Hall sobered up enough to realize that he misaddressed the ransom note. He put Kansas City, Missouri, when the family actually lived in the neighboring Mission Hills, Kansas. After planting flowers on the disturbed dirt of Bobby's grave to make it look less suspicious to neighbors, Hall and Hetty went to downtown Kansas City to mail the second and correctly addressed ransom note. This ransom note was different, though. This time, Hall included the medal that Bobby had taken with him as proof that they were the ones who had taken the boy. When news of the kidnapping hit, a few opportunistic people tried to take advantage, claiming they had Bobby. Four people would eventually be arrested for doing this, though they weren't the only ones who did it. But with the medal, it was clear who the real kidnappers were. Hall called the Greenleys home, asking if they got the letters, and complained that he didn't see them drive up Main Street. He didn't actually know if they did or not. He wasn't watching, according to his later statement to the FBI. But obviously, he had to act like he was staking the street out. He did plant another note for them to find, and this time, he watched. He knew then that the family intended to cooperate. On his phone call, he referred to the ribbon so the family knew this was the actual kidnapper. They also referred to the ribbon in all future calls so they knew they weren't just talking to another hoaxer. In the end, Hall would have sent the family something like five ransom notes and will have called them at least a dozen times. On the phone calls, he would assure the family that Bobby was fine and rambunctious. During calls where they asked to speak to Bobby, Hall claimed he tried to get Bobby on the phone, but he wouldn't comply. They asked him questions to ask Bobby that only Bobby would know and he couldn't answer them. While Hetty had gotten the names of pets out of him, 
The family asked more specific questions like what did Bobby build out of blocks the night before he was kidnapped? Now, obviously, Hall and Hetty had no idea, so Hall dodged the questions. Pretty much everyone was sure it was more likely than not that Bobby was deceased, but hoping for the best, the family continued to negotiate the ransom and the drop. They managed to gather all the money that was requested. The ransom collection would have been a comedy of errors if there was anything funny about this. Hall told the family in the phone call that they would find the note under a mailbox at one intersection. The family sent two men, friends of Bobby Greenlease, late at night to arrange the drop. The first paper they grabbed from under the mailbox was actually some kid's homework. They had to go back and look around to find the note that told them to go to the Greenlease car dealership and change cars. But when they got there, the dealership was closed and they couldn't get to the key, so they just went forward with the same car. Then the next instruction was to go to another mailbox, and there they found another note that told them to then go to a church. Hall got the name of the church wrong, but this time at least the address was correct. And there, there was a note that told them to leave the money there at the church. The men who were delivering the ransom decided not to leave the money. By the time they got there, the sun was coming up, and pretty much anyone could have seen the drop point just by walking by. They weren't about to leave $600,000 where anybody could grab it. They instead left a note claiming that the money was ready, but they couldn't get it until normal business hours, not in these pre-dawn hours. Their thinking here was that this excuse would be more readily accepted by the kidnapper. But someone passing by saw the note and they alerted police knowing it had to do with the kidnapping. So Hall never got this note. Meanwhile, Hall was getting agitated because there was actually another note under another mailbox that he had left that night. But Hall's instructions never actually led there. So the family didn't even know to go to that spot. He saw that they hadn't picked up that note, so he assumed they hadn't picked up any of them and they hadn't gone to the church with the money. He called the family to see what the holdup was, and they had to admit that his instructions were confusing, and they gave him the line that they didn't have the money anyway in their possession yet, but they would soon. A new round of notes started giving new drop instructions, except that they were even more confusing than before. One note used odd abbreviation and spelled the name of the major road incorrectly. The men did their best following what they thought the note said and found a spot they thought was most likely the correct location and dropped off the money. $600,000 in 20s and 10s weighed over 80 pounds or 36 kilograms. So this was a very heavy duffel bag of cash on the side of the road in a remote area late at night. Not to mention it was raining that night. Hall and Hetty still had the rental car they used to stake out the Greenleys family, and they took that to the drop site, but Hall couldn't find the money. When he turned to go back down the lane to look for the spot, he passed a car he believed to be the Greenleys's. This would cause him concern because he hadn't changed the plates on this car, and it was rented in Hetty's name. If they saw the car and took down the tag number, it would trace back to her. But he didn't have the money, so he wasn't about to back away. He drove back into Kansas City and called the Greenleys home, and they told him the money was there and he needed to go back and look for it. He went back and still couldn't find it. So he called the Greenleys family once again and was told that the men who left it there were going back for it. They didn't want someone else to stumble on it. 
Hall then apologised for his mistake and said he'd call back with better instructions. This is what happens when the person calling the shots is spending his days drunk. Hall found yet a third drop site, about a mile south of Highway 40 on Lee Summit Road, and there is a bridge there that goes over the Little Blue River. He decided that they should leave the money under the bridge. Hall told the FBI that he thought the arrangements were clear this time. Hall had the men doing the drop go to the hotel to wait for the call, but he forgot the name of the hotel. He had part of the name, so they were able to figure out it was the Berkshire Hotel. This is when he gave them directions to the bridge on Lee Summit Road. No more trail of letters, just a direct spot. Around 11.30 on Sunday, October 4th, the drop was made. It had been six days since Bobby was taken. This time, Hall and Hetty retrieved the money. Rather, Hall did, while Hetty was just in and out of it because she was so intoxicated after drinking for the better part of the week. She possibly wasn't able to cope with her role in the murder of Bobby. We're going to have to take one last sponsor break here. And when we're back, we will talk about what Hetty and Hall did after they got the money and the events that led to their eventual capture. Let's talk about Brooklyn and Sheets. As you know, Charlie and I are massive fans of Brooklyn and so much so we are repeat customers and have gone back multiple times to buy sheets for our whole family. Because I think we underestimate how important sleep is. We can go on and on in these ads about how you spend a third of your life in your sheets, but it's so much more than that. A good night's sleep helps your mood, your mental health, your ability to handle those challenges life throws at you. And a good night's sleep needs good bed linen. And that's where Brooklinen comes in. Their philosophy is to give you the most beautiful, comfortable home essentials without those crazy prices. And that's a good philosophy to have. Brooklinen is the fastest growing bedding brand in the world. And they have over 15,000 five-star reviews. And it's easy to see why. You won't sleep on a more comfortable pair of sheets. Mine comes straight in off the line and straight on my bed. Seriously, my Brooklyn and Sheets are the best, most comfortable sheets I've slept on. And right now, brooklinen.com has an exclusive offer just for our listeners. Get $20 off and free shipping when you use promo code SITE at brooklinen.com. Brooklinen is so confident that they offer a risk-free 60-night satisfaction guarantee and a lifetime warranty on all their sheets and comforters. The only way to get $20 off and free shipping is to use promo code SITE at brooklinen.com. That's B-R-O-O-K-L-I-N-E-N.com slash site. Brooklinen, these are the best sheets ever. They had the money, but Hall was still thinking about having passed the men on the road. If the men in that catalog had spotted him and taken down that plate number, it would direct them immediately back to Hetty. And back to Hetty meant right to her yard, which is where Bobby was buried. Hall stopped to call the Greenlees home one more time, and he told them that he had the money and that they were to go the next day to the Western Union in Pittsburgh, Kansas, which is about two hours south of Kansas City. Instructions on where to find Bobby would be wired there. Of course, the wire never came. The Greenlees family waited at home 
Well, the same friends who had handled these ridiculous ransom drops, they went. They spent two days in Pittsburgh waiting at the Western Union for this telegram. Even with all the mistakes with the addresses and the drop-offs, the plan had gone off without too much trouble on Hall and Hetty's part. If it wasn't for that license plate, they probably would have thought they were in the clear. The initial plan was to just go back to St. Joseph like nothing had happened. They would go on with their lives and sit on the money for a while before they would slowly start to use it. But with this fear that they were going to get caught... They deviated from their plan. Hall changed the plates on the rental car, and they left Kansas City around 2 a.m. and headed for St. Louis, arriving probably around 6 in the morning on Monday, October 5th. Investigators went over every detail of what they did in St. Louis, and you can read it all in the report if you're interested. The FBI vault has the entire thing, but we're going to shorten it for the sake of not boring ourselves. The first thing they did in St. Louis was to look for an open bar at six in the morning. There were a lot of visits to bars during their short stay in the city. From the bar, Hall called an attorney friend of his back in St. Joseph, Missouri, who had helped him with some minor problems in the past. He asked him to intervene at the rental car agency and have the record of Hetty renting the car destroyed. He played it off as a minor issue, but the lawyer refused. Then the couple went to buy luggage. They still had nearly all the cash, weighing over 80 pounds, in the duffel bag from the drop. It was heavy and not terribly secure, so they bought two metal suitcases to keep the money in. One of the suitcases was more of a footlocker or trunk. Hetty wanted to stay in a nice hotel, but she was drunk, and Hall felt that would cause people to take note of them. So instead, they decided to rent an apartment. But before they did that, they dumped the rental car and went to a used car lot to buy a car for $450. Hetty was mad Hall bought that car. She didn't want a used one. She wanted a new one. But the purpose of the car wasn't to use long term. Hall just felt it would make them look more legitimate driving up to apartment homes to rent if they had a car and didn't show up in a taxi. By noon that day, they had rented a furnished apartment. So it was quite a different time when you can show up in a new town at 6 a.m. And by noon, you have a new car and you have an apartment. According to Hall, Hetty immediately fell asleep in the apartment. He left $2,000 in the bottom of her purse with a note saying something about he needed to leave because of something concerning he heard on the radio. Hall called a cab, deciding to ditch the used car and told the driver that he needed to find a girl, a sex worker, who would fly to Los Angeles and mail the letter for him. He would pay all expenses. This driver couldn't help, but he knew another driver named John Hager, who would act as a pimp of sorts for a woman named Sandy O'Day. Hall introduced himself to Hager and O'Day as Steve, and he alluded to having committed some type of insurance fraud to get a lot of money. So he needed their help throwing the police off the trail, and he was throwing a lot of money their way in exchange for this help. The letter Hall wanted O'Day to mail was to his lawyer friend. It had about $500 in it as a thank you for all this friend had done for him. But he wanted it mailed from Los Angeles so that if or when the police intercepted the letter, they would assume that he fled west. 
He then went with Hager and O'Day to a motel to make the arrangements, and within 24 hours, Hall would talk O'Day into flying to Los Angeles to mail the letter, and he would talk Hager into renting him a car, purchasing him new clothes, and even getting him fake identification. There was a lot of money being thrown around, so they were easily persuaded. Meanwhile, Hall was dragging this money in and out of rental cars and cabs and apartments and motel rooms. He realized he couldn't keep that much cash while on the move. So he decided he was going to bury it and then come back for it later when he was settled. On the afternoon of Tuesday, October 6th, using the car that Hager had rented for him, Hall went to a hardware store and bought two 16-gallon trash cans, two plastic bags, and a shovel. But after driving around for a couple hours, he couldn't find anywhere that he felt was secure enough of a spot to bury the money. So he dumped the items he had bought into an abandoned clubhouse. He still wanted to bury the money, and he planned to go back to get these materials again and devote the whole next day to finding a place to bury this money. While all of this is happening, Hager and O'Day were getting suspicious. O'Day had looked in the trunk and saw the large amount of money. She then opened the letter she was given to send and found out Steve's real name was Carl. She knew two things here. Carl had a lot of money and Carl had some major criminal issue going on. So instead of flying to L.A., she hired a cab that would take her across the state to St. Joseph. Her plan was to meet with the person Hall was writing to. Possibly she thought he knew something about Hall's crimes and would be in a position to perhaps give her more money if he was actually involved in the crimes. Hager never saw the money, but O'Day had told him about it. He told the FBI he didn't know it had to do with the kidnapping until around 3.30 on Tuesday, October 6th, when he called a lieutenant with the St. Louis police. Lieutenant Lewis Shoulders had a son who drove a cab with the same company Hager worked with. According to Hager, he called Shoulders, who put two and two together, and connected Hall to the kidnapping. After Hager called him, he and another officer, Elmer Dolan, decided to arrest Hall. Hager had left the hotel room, and when he returned, he brought Shoulders and Dolan in with him. They initially told Hall he was being arrested on gun charges. We'll get back to the circumstances of the arrest in a little bit because that's its own story. Hetty was arrested later that same night at the apartment. She still had the $2,000 Hall had given her. When giving his initial statement just hours after his arrest, Hall denied everything but was incredibly sick. He kept vomiting and at around 2.30 in the morning, they took him to the hospital. He had been drinking and had done morphine earlier that day and he was likely going through withdrawal. They gave him a few hours and then returned him to the station for more questioning. He wasn't much better, but he tried to get Hetty completely out of the mess and implicate someone else. Hall claimed that he told Hetty that Bobby Greenlease was his son. His ex-wife had gotten a court order keeping him away and all he wanted to do was to visit with his son. After getting Bobby out of school, Hetty left him and Hall alone for two hours for this visit. At the end of this quote-unquote visit, Hall told Hetty he returned the boy to his school. And Hall blamed the murder on a man named Tom Marsh. 
He claimed he turned Bobby over to Marsh to hide and Marsh was the one who killed Bobby. He gave some information on Marsh, that he was an ex-con with previous charges for child molestation. The thing is, we now know that Marsh wasn't involved. Hetty was completely confused when authorities asked her about him. Hall had made this Tom Marsh up. But see, there was a Tom Marsh in Missouri with a previous conviction for child molestation. Investigators pursued this lead, even interviewing his father to try to find Marsh's location. As far as I can tell, they never found Marsh himself, and they couldn't find any connection for how Hall knew this man or knew of him. But it would have had to have been just a huge coincidence if Hall pulled this name out of thin air and the crimes happened to match a real man with that name. So there had to have been a connection somewhere. Hetty's story also included the part about Hall telling her that Bobby was actually his son, and she had an answer for everything. When the Greenlease kidnapping made news, surely she knew that Hall's story of returning him to school was false. She said she did find out the next day, and she asked Hall about it, and he told her that he didn't return the boy but had handed him over to someone else who was keeping him. As for the disturbed plot in her yard, she said Hall told her that he had just turned over the patch of dirt so they could plant the flowers. She claimed she knew nothing about the ransom and basically said that she was so drunk that she didn't really pay a lot of mind to what Hall was doing in these days. He was excusing himself to use the phone a lot, but that didn't concern her. The details of what they did in the days after the kidnapping involved a lot of bars she couldn't remember the names of, and according to her, she slept most of it. She does remember Hall proposing that they take a weekend trip to St. Louis, so she didn't think they were on the run. This was just a trip. As for when Hall left her in the apartment with the money, she didn't find the money that he left her until she went into her purse to pay for a cab that she had taken to a liquor store. She didn't know where he got the money, and then she remembers being arrested. And this was her initial story to the FBI. The reason they both told the same story about Hetty thinking Bobby was Hall's son is that they planned that. Hetty was hesitant to go through with the kidnapping plot, and one way Hall convinced her was with a promise to exonerate her if they got caught. He was making good on that promise. But their stories eventually changed, and they admitted the truth of their involvement. There was no Tom Marsh. Hetty knew the plan all along, and she was there when Bobby was killed, and this was corroborated by the evidence. She told investigators that she walked away from the car so she wouldn't witness Bobby being killed. The wind picked up and blew her hat off of her head. When investigators followed Hall's directions and found the spot where Bobby was killed, they found a hat that matched Hetty's description perfectly in a nearby field. They also found Bobby's mechanical pencil that he had taken with him. Hetty may have changed her story because the FBI was sending handwriting samples of hers to compare to the ransom notes. She was the one who wrote them, and she likely figured they would find that out soon enough. There was the start of jurisdictional wrangling in this case. Bobby was kidnapped in Kansas City, Missouri, murdered in Johnson County, Kansas, and the ransom note was initiated from St. Joseph, Missouri, to a home in Mission Hills, Kansas but this issue would be resolved really quickly with the Lindbergh Law, which makes the transportation of a kidnap victim over state lines a federal case. 
even though the distance from where Bobby was kidnapped to the state line was only two miles, in those two miles, they crossed a big jurisdictional line. The federal courts would get the case. There was another investigation happening parallel to the kidnapping, and this was the case of the ransom money. The cab driver, Hager, who turned Hall in, may not have been doing this for altruistic reasons. When Hall was arrested, he told police that the bulk of the ransom was still there, that he'd only spent a few thousand dollars, and he had failed at his first attempt to hide the money. But when the money made it to the police department, a little over half of it was gone, around $300,000. Dolan and Shoulders, the arresting officers, they claimed they brought the money in when they brought Hall in. But the statements of multiple witnesses make it clear that this was a lie. They made this claim in testimony to a grand jury investigating what happened to the money, and they were both later convicted for perjury for this and sentenced to a couple of years in jail each. After Shoulders died, Dolan told the FBI the truth. He told FBI agents that there was another man involved in this. Hager, the cab driver, didn't call Shoulders himself. He called Joe Costello, who was president of a taxi company and a man who had ties with organised crime. He called him to tell him that he had this man with a lot of money and perhaps they could separate the man with some of this money. Costello then called Shoulders and they came up with this plan to have Hall arrested on gun charges and have some of the money disappear in the meantime. Dolan said he was only there that night on chance. Shoulders usually had a different patrolman drive him around, but that man wasn't on duty that night, so he asked Dolan. After Hall was booked at the police station, Dolan and Shoulders left. The money had been brought to Costello's basement, where they split up the 300000 Dolan says he turned down the money that was offered to him, and he told Shoulders, don't take it. But Shoulders did anyway, Costello took some, and Shoulders and Dolan returned to the police station with the remaining half of the money. They did not know or suspect this money was connected to the Greenlease kidnapping. They would have been stupid to take any of it if they did know, since they would have had to have known the serial numbers had been recorded. It wasn't until after they took the money and then returned with the half-empty suitcases to the station that they heard it was the ransom money, and by then it was too late for them to do anything about it. This money has never turned up. No one was charged for taking the money because there was no evidence, and Dolan didn't tell his story until both of the other men involved were dead. It's believed that once it became apparent the money they stole was connected to the Greenlease kidnapping, Shoulders and Costello moved it out of the St. Louis area. A few pieces have been caught in circulation, but the bulk of it remains entirely unaccounted for. It's believed it was laundered through the mafia in Chicago. There was no legal wrangling like we sometimes see in cases. Both Hetty and Hall immediately pled guilty to murder. There was still a three-day trial because the death penalty was on the table. Due to the Lindbergh Law, a kidnapping that included harming the victim was a capital offense. The trial started on November 16th. This was just seven weeks after Bobby was killed. The prosecution had Hall and Hetty's confessions read into the record, so it didn't matter at all whether they took the stand. Both of Bobby's parents testified, as did the nun who pointed Hetty out from the stand. None of this was being disputed by the defense. They essentially stipulated that it was all true. 
The attorneys for each defendant had one goal, and that was to avoid the death penalty. Eddie didn't want anyone to testify in her defense, but the aunt who raised her testified that she was a kind person who had a hard life. Hall had a few witnesses from his hometown. They testified about how Hall's parents were stern and cold toward their child, and one testified that Hall left for the service, a carefree young man, but came back from war hardened. Now, Hetty had a few moments where she seemed genuinely remorseful, that she had to pretty much drink to forget her role in Bobby's murder, and she didn't even want a character witness at the trial to attempt to spare her life. She made statements about deserving the death penalty. On the other hand, Hall seemed like a callous psychopath who killed a little boy in cold blood, told his mother he was fine and being a handful, and only seemed to unravel when he became paranoid about carrying around all that money. Yet, observers at the trial reported the near opposite. Hetty seemed completely content. The only time she got emotional was when someone was testifying about how hard Hall took the death of his father and being sent away from his home. She didn't seem to care at all about anything else, and one reporter used the word jaunty to describe her. Hall, on the other hand, was seen blinking back tears, looking away from those testifying, and he was so overwhelmed after Bobby's mother testified that he had to ask for a recess. The closing arguments from the defence attorneys were basically that their clients had hard lives. Hetty's attorney pointed out that she wasn't that bad off financially because of the property she owned, and the only reason she went along with the plan was due to the manipulation of Hall. The judge gave the jury instructions that they are deciding this based on the Lindbergh law, and they deliberated for about an hour before coming back with the recommendation for the death penalty. The judge then sentenced them both to death, and neither one of them opted to appeal. I've so often seen it stated that death penalty cases get an automatic appeal. So I asked Dominique Mix from the Death Store podcast about this. As some of you already know, I'm joining Dominique as a co-host on that show for season two, and my role is to ask these kinds of questions, so I'm practicing here. And I asked her about Hetty and Hall not appealing when I thought they would have a, quote, automatic appeal. Stating that the appeal is automatic can give people like me the wrong idea of how this actually works. These appeals are automatic in that they're automatically given the right to appeal and the court has to hear it on its merits. But the convicted can, as Hetty and Hall did, waive their right. Because they pled guilty, their appeal options were limited from what Dominique explained to me. They would have to either argue that their pleas were involuntary or that the law or sentence was unconstitutional. And another interesting tidbit, she told me that during this time in the 1950s, the death penalty was actually on the decline. So it's kind of interesting that this case was seen as so heinous that it deserved the death penalty, even as states were moving away from the death penalty. Also at this time, the federal government did not carry out their own death penalties. They relied entirely on the state. So Hall and Hetty were housed on death row at Missouri State Penitentiary. Missouri used a gas chamber as the method of execution at the time. So just after midnight on December 18th, Hall and Hetty entered the gas chamber together and were pronounced dead about 10 minutes later. They were both taken by their families to be buried on family plots. Bonnie Hetty is the only woman executed in the state of Missouri, 
and only one of three the federal government has ever put to death. The other two were Mary Surratt, who was convicted of conspiring to assassinate President Lincoln, and Ethel Rosenberg, who was convicted with her husband of conspiracy to commit espionage. And something that struck me as a little interesting when I was researching this, the only woman currently on federal death row committed her crime in the same county in Missouri where Hetty had grown up. I don't understand Hall trying to say that he gave the child over to this Tom Marsh. I mean, he says that Tom Marsh was a child molester. And if you're trying to take the blame off of yourself, you don't remove blame by saying you took a child that you had kidnapped and handed them over to a child molester. That doesn't work, right? You know, I didn't catch that child molester part until you just mentioned it, that that would be the last person, if you were trying to keep a child safe during a kidnapping situation like this, who you would give the child to. You would assume that a child molester would harm the child, and then if the child gets harmed, that could affect you getting the ransom, which would then blow up your whole plan. The other thing that I really took note of throughout this whole case is how much alcohol these people consumed. And if you wanted to point to why this whole thing unraveled, it was unraveling the whole way because of their drinking. They couldn't give clear instructions. They couldn't follow their own instructions. And they couldn't keep it straight over what plates to use with which car and which car to take. It seemed it seemed like they just constantly put themselves in the worst possible uh, positions here. It, and, you know, I, I have no problem with that because that's why they were caught. But yeah, alcoholism is bad. Yeah, you should read the um, their statements to the FBI is basically we went to a bar. I don't remember the name of it. And then we went to this other bar and I don't remember the name of it. Like the entire statement is about all the bars they went to. And I think that they probably confessed fairly easily because they were both going into withdrawal and they were easy to convinced to confess because they were struggling with the physical symptoms of withdrawal. Without the alcohol, they very well could have gotten away with it. And from what I understand, the car they passed, whether it was the green lease car or not, whoever was in it did not write down their tag number. So this whole paranoid, they have our license plate, we're going to get caught, wasn't even based in reality. But that would be due to the alcoholism and the drug use as well, wouldn't it? It's almost surely his amphetamine use made him paranoid. I think it's interesting at the end that neither one of them really fought much. They just went ahead and the time from the kidnapping to their execution was only a couple of months. This all moved very quickly that they just accepted this fate, accepted this punishment. And I find that a very interesting thing from two people who were cold enough to make a plan that involved killing a six-year-old. Wouldn't that be due to the fact that they realized they would never have money again? I mean, why live, right? The fact that they took these great risks to try and get this money, and yet money slipped through their fingers anyway, I think they just realized this is, you know, this is just a futile situation for them. They weren't going to have the lifestyle they wanted, and they were behind bars, they were captured, for a horrible crime, I, I think this was the easy way out. They were on death row, so it's not like they were getting drugs or alcohol contraband because they were so isolated from each other and from other inmates. 
It makes you wonder what they were thinking after they sobered up. Being separated from each other also seemed to be a stressor because I had read that Hall had asked permission if he and Hetty could get married before their execution because he had promised her that they'd get married. And the only thing she really got upset with in the trial was the accounts of his childhood and what had happened to him growing up, which wasn't clearly nearly as bad as what they did to Bobby. So I think them being separated from each other and separated from money was a major factor in their decision that they were fine without living. It's one of those cases where would Hetty had gone into that life like committing those kind of crimes if she didn't have Hall's influence? I think we'll never really know what they were thinking in those last days as they got closer to execution. They didn't leave journals. So I don't think we'll ever know what they were thinking. And this happened just so fast from start to finish. It's it's really a fascinating case. The Greenlease family stayed in Mission Hills after Bobby's death. Bobby's brother Paul died just 11 years later in 1964, and his father Robert died in 1969. The family was always generous with their wealth, and Bobby's mother Virginia focused much of her life after the loss of her son, stepson and husband continuing this work. The family gave large endowments to numerous Kansas City nonprofits. Three of the most enduring gifts were to help further Catholic education in Kansas City. On what would have been Bobby's 15th birthday, the family donated the land to build a new Rockhurst High School facility in Kansas City. And Rockhurst is an all-boys Catholic school, and very likely the high school Bobby would have attended. They also endowed funds to build the Greenlease Library at Rockhurst University, which was completed in 1967. And then many years later, Virginia was a co-founder of the Strong City School Fund, a scholarship program for disadvantaged children to attend Catholic schools in the Kansas City area. Last year alone, the program awarded about a million dollars in scholarships. Hall and Hetty targeted the Greenlease family because they coveted their wealth, while Virginia Greenlease spent much of her life just giving it away. Virginia was the last surviving member of Bobby's immediate family. Virginia Sue had died in 1984, and Virginia died in 2001 at the age of 91. And Aaron, thank you so much for coming on and covering this story with us. It was great to be on with both of you. Thank you, Charlie and Allie. Thank you for listening. You can find us on Facebook at Insight Podcast, Twitter at Insightful Pod, Instagram at Insight Pod, or email us at insightfulpod at gmail.com. You can also support the show at patreon.com slash insightpod. And a special thank you to Chesgrave Music for our new custom theme.